0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're continuing this series, this five-week series, reflecting on the 500th uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, where we look at core principles of the Christian faith that were reaffirmed during that period, and good for us today, biblical thinking of what we should believe and why. And I love this passage because we see here Paul is saying that, it isn't in being a good communicator and preacher, but the power of God, and so if I completely ruin this sermon, Jesus loves me, and it's okay. <laughs> Paul wasn't a great preacher. He wasn't a great communicator. It's amazing to see that Paul as one who trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus and, and the cross for everything. If we can sum up, if you're just kind of coming into this series today for the first time, if we could sum up what was the main objective of the Protestant reformers 500 years ago, it might be said in this way, that in all that they desired to do was to take man out of the center of our salvation and all the work that God was doing, take man out of the center of our lives and put God in the center of our lives. His work and what he has done and who he was and, and the work of, that he was doing through his son, at the center of everything that mattered. So in regards to salvation, the Reformers took man out of the center of it and put Jesus' accomplishments on the cross at the center of our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. In regards to Christian growth and resisting sin and and growing in righteousness, they took man out of the center of our growth and sanctification and put the power of God working through the Holy Spirit, working through our faith at the center of it all. And in regards to eternal security, they took man out of the center, man's, man's idea that it is our endurance that keeps us saved and in the love of God, and put God's eternal promises and enduring promises at the center of our salvation. And in all things, they attempted to, to rightfully and, and, and according to Scripture to push all achievements of salvation and sanctification and future glory away from our record and character and all on the record and character of Jesus. Plain and simple. And so that that could really just sum up all that they attempted to do, and we we learn from that still. And so just a a couple pictures to picture these things of different ways to think about uh, our lives and to view everything in it and then in viewing it in in a biblical sense and even what the reformers tried to accomplish for us. uh, You have your life. This is the first picture of your life. You have life and you have many responsibilities. You have your finances. You maybe have a young family or an aging family and growing kids. You have your church life. You have your fitness and your work and your vocation. You have your recreation, your politics, your citizenship. Your, your neighbor activities. You have all of these things and you are there trying to maintain and juggle it all. This is what you could call a man-centered view of your life. You have all of these activities and it's up to you to, to do your best at them. And if you grow weary and tired, something is going to fall because you are an okay juggler, not a great one. And so if, if things happen, you have to start saying no. What what drops in your life? Is it your your spiritual disciplines? Is it your family? Is it your finances? Is it it your recreation? You become a workaholic. What starts to fall when things get really busy? And so in a man-centered view of salvation, the essence of Christianity takes place in all of your spiritual activity. So some of these activities are more spiritual and glorifying to God than others. And if we are at the center, then we have compartments of our lives of all these things that we talked about. But then there's a different way of thinking about our lives. In a, in a God-centered view, in a God-centered view of our life and salvation, the essence of Christianity takes place not in what we do in our daily life, but it t- or in, 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 in religious things, or in the church, or in the four walls, or through our Bible study, but it takes place in, in the, the context of our of glorifying God is is everywhere. So when God is at the center, we take the gospel as going out like the spokes of a wheel. It is going out touching everything. It's overflowing into our finances. It's overflowing into our recreation, overflowing into our politics and our family life and our neighbor life. It's overflowing into our work. Everything is informed by God who is at the center. So when God is at the center and our love for Him resting in His grace, it becomes the influence and the fuel for everything that we do. If it was believed a long time ago, and even sometimes today, that, if, that God was in the monastery, not in the marketplace, that the spiritual work, the things worth doing, were the, the activities that the church was doing. And so if you wanted to know if you were glorifying God, you had to do a lot of spiritual things. You had to go to church, you had to participate in the sacraments, you had to, you had to pray, you had to tithe, you had to, you had to read the Bible, you had to do all of these things. And so there were really spiritual things, and then there were secular things or common things, and those things weren't really important to God. And so it didn't matter how you did in your family life, it didn't matter how you conducted yourself in work, as long as you were going to church and, and doing what the priest said and, and being a really good Christian. And what happened was this man-centered view of salvation, uh, it led to a divided world where church activities mattered more to God than regular everyday activities, where you and I spend our Monday through our Saturday. And we feel it today. You know, when you woke up this morning and decided to come to church, did you feel, did you feel, you don't have to say it out loud, but did you feel a sense of rightness Before God in what you were doing, in in getting up and getting ready, it was good for you to go to church, as if to think that being here somehow was an act that could potentially bring more glory to God than waking up and changing a dirty diaper, or doing something else, or sitting in front of the TV, or just sleeping in, or going on a walk in the cool of the morning or carefully orchestrating a sales presentation for your Monday, or calibrating brake pads, or trimming someone's hedges, or helping an employee improve their, their work performance. Do you feel that being here this morning is somehow more pleasing to God than what you're going to do tomorrow morning? There's this feeling that you can glorify God more in the church than you can in the boardroom, more than, more in feeding the poor than in feeding your children as they get ready for school. You ever feel that? I feel it a lot. I feel like I get the effect of it a lot when I'm golfing with strangers and they're just cursing like sailors the whole day and then they find out I'm a pastor and the rest of the day they spend just apologizing, right? (laughs) That somehow that my presence and my vocation has the potential for glorifying God more than a street sweeper or an executive or an accountant or whatever, whatever it is that the golf course matters less than the worship service in our potential to glorify God. If you are confused in this, if you believe that what you do here in just an hour and a half span of time is somehow more glorifying to God than what you will do the rest of the week, then the Protestant Reformation is for you. <laughs> you need this, and we need this. And the result leads to... the. The Protestant Reformation helped to break down these dividing walls between between this thinking that there were spiritual activities that were good and that God cared about, and then there were just things that God didn't care about, and that's where we spend most of our life. And so we work, we play, we try to do the best we can, and then we worship God in church and participate in church activities, and those are the things that really mattered to God. So this morning, we answer the question, what difference does the gospel make on Monday? Our passage leads us to these three <clears throat> daily uh, considerations to live out this the gospel, biblical Christianity, every day. And that's through understanding our daily calling, our daily practice, and our daily satisfaction. And, and, and as we walk through this and this passage, it's going to help us to think about that God matters. God, God, All things matter to God. And so let's look at our daily calling. What is your calling? What are you called to do? How do you know that your time spent in any activity that you spend your time in is that it's pleasing to God, that it's good work, that it's a good deed. What makes a certain job or vocation even considered good work? Do you have to become a pastor, a missionary, a full-time church uh, employee to honor God in your work? Are you in the right job? Now, I'm not Uh, I'm not a guidance counselor trying to match your skills up with the right career for you. That's a great and worthy exercise, but that's for another time, another day. We're not going to do that today, but we're going to think about this. If the essence of Christianity is not in what we do for God, but in what God has done for us in Jesus, then the external act of our work is not what is important, but it is the faith in which we do it that is important. You can have two people doing the exact same work, one person glorifying God, honoring God, and one person not. Our scripture says, consider your calling. Consider your calling. God's calling us into relationship with him. God's speaking the gospel, the good news to us, that we are considered innocent before God, as even still as sinful people because of God's mercy and grace to us. It wasn't because you were smart that you were saved. It wasn't because you were well-spoken. It wasn't because you were powerful that God loved you. But it was because of His mercy and the grace of God that He called you into relationship with Him. So if that's true, if it's because of God's grace through faith, then true biblical Christianity is not lived out doing spiritual things in a spiritual place, but rather the context for living out True, biblical Christianity is our everyday life. The way you live out your calling is not just in the spiritual activities, but in the context of your life, all things that he has given to you. Our daily calling, then, is to live by faith in everything. When we're putting together a work presentation, when we are working on a spreadsheet, when we are mowing someone's lawn, when we are resting on the couch, every activity becomes the context for living out our calling as God's people, filled with His grace and His mercy, trusting in His righteousness. Paul fleshes this out in our passage, he says that, that His goal in His work among us, His His proclaiming of the good news and all of his labors as a missionary to to these people was to show them that what matters and all they do is faith resting in God. Everything that matters is faith resting in God, not in the work that they do. And Paul says there are three ways to pursue our purpose and our calling in life. Some people do it by seeking a sign. Some people do it by seeking wisdom. And we should do it by seeking faith, seeking faith in Christ and all he has done. Let's look at those three people that are mentioned here. Who are the sign seekers? So he says, Don't be like the Jewish people who seek a sign. What would it look like to, for us to, to be sign seekers? Well, those, who are, those, those people are the people that define success by how influential you are, how much you have, how big of a crowd you gather, how much you are quoted, how long you are remembered. It's about how you are perceived by others. And so sign seekers are are people that are looking at what do you have? What have you accomplished? What have you built? What have you done? And we value life and all that is in it. We value people based on what they have accomplished and and what they have done. And if you're perceived by others as successful and well-off and powerful and productive, then then you're, you're doing good work. You're accomplishing much. Do you want to know if you're a sign seeker? What's the first question when you meet somebody for the first time? What's the first question you ask them other than what's your name? What's the first question you ask them? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Where do you work? Where did you graduate from? How many people have you created? Right? (laughs) How much you bench? I mean, what are all the accomplishments you have done so I can determine if I can spend time with you and you're going to be a friend of mine? that's not what I do I just want to get to know them you don't know it we're sign seekers we look at someone's life and we want to know the metrics of their life what have they accomplished I mean we should just save all of our time and just carry around our resumes wherever we go hi my name's Pete here's all that I've accomplished do you want to hang out (laughs) well let me I gotta gotta evaluate this and double check it with uh you know we've got several applications for friendship these (laughs) days and you know I mean this is how we act we're sign seekers well who are the wisdom seekers You could say, well, I don't do that. I I care about people. Okay, well, who are the wisdom seekers? The wise in the Greek world were considered the moral guides. They were the ones who had the compass for life. They're ones that showed us how to direct our lives. Wisdom was far less about achievements. It was not an achievement. A wisdom was a character. It was a character trait, not something that you have done, but it was something that you were, and it was said you were wise if you were able to restore a sense of morality to life and a way to go. Well, who are the wisdom seekers? The wisdom seekers would say, the point of life is to choose your own path and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The wisdom seekers are the ones who say that personal thought and personal freedom and personal ideas are what makes a person truly free and truly human. To be who you feel you are to be. That is what is important in life. And don't let anyone tell you that you cannot be what you feel you should be. These are the wisdom seekers. Life's purpose and calling is not about what you accomplish, but it's about an inner happiness and satisfaction in yourself that's important. So do you see how we can also be wisdom seekers? There are wisdom seekers among us. You know, so those who can't do teach, right? So it's, those are the two different kinds of people. I'm oh, sorry, the teachers are very accomplished as well. Uh, but see, that maybe even if, as I said that, you're offended. You're just like, no, I do stuff. Why? Because you're also a sign seeker. So we are <laughs> sign seekers. We're sign seekers and wisdom seekers. We, we look at what is accomplished, but we say, no, I reject that. It's not about what you do. It is about finding your own path. And Jesus says, well, you don't want to be like that either. The wisdom is from God, the accomplishment is from God, it's not from you. And so in some ways, these two kinds of people are very opposite, they're opposed to one another, they're even fighting with one another, but in some ways they're actually quite the same. They are both, they both fail to reflect the true daily calling that we have. If God chooses the foolish and the unwise based on his mercy, then our accomplishments and our personal pursuit of morality count for nothing. If, our, if God chooses the weak, if he chooses the foolish, then our ideas about the right way to live and finding our true calling are useless. Here's the biblical logic and the conclusion of the Reformers as they dwelled on Scripture deeply. If God chooses what is foolish to shame the wise and weak to shame the strong and makes salvation all about Him, then what is holy is not confined to spiritual activity in the church, but everywhere becomes holy ground. Everything becomes spiritual. Everything becomes the context for glorifying God. Everyday life, and activity become the context for glorifying God. It's really possible to over-spiritualize our calling. That there's this one thing, there's this one profession, there's this one thing that God has prepared beforehand for us to give us to our lives. And if we find that one thing that God has prepared before time for us to walk in then we will be satisfied and God if you would lead me in that one calling that you have for me then I will finally be happy and many Christians struggle with a sense of calling to find calling and meaning and purpose in their life one of the great reformers Martin Luther he he had no context for the, the for the phrase finding your calling and yet it's something we use all the time in, today. we, in today's Christianity. We talk about it all the time. What is your calling? What is God's calling for your life? Your calling and my calling are the current circumstances of our lives. And we're meant to live each moment by faith in Jesus and His mercy. Living in gratitude and praise to Him in all things. That is our calling. Are you a mother? Then you are called to be a mother. Are you an office worker? Then you are called to be an office worker. Are you a table waiter? Then you're called to be a table waiter. You're not made for anything specific other than to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There is freedom, of course, to change our circumstances. There's freedom to change our vocation. there's never this mysterious word from God waiting to be discovered apart from Christ. We have a daily calling to live by faith, to glorify God in all we do. And so since our mutual calling is to glorify God in all of life, there is no hierarchy of profession in God's sight. And I know I'm hurting myself here. There is no hierarchy of profession in God's sight That has potential for glorifying him more one over another. Is that, can you believe that? Is it believable? If you have trouble understanding that, then then what we see is that we're we're, we're sign seekers, we're wisdom seekers. We, We have a division between the sacred and the secular. We see that there's some activities that are important to God and some activities that God doesn't care about. God doesn't care about how we dress or where we work or what we do, He doesn't care about our leisure. God cares about how I engage in spiritual activity within the church. But if we're justified by faith, then that wall is broken down and all of it matters to God. Listen to this quote by seminary professor and author Gene uh, Vith. He says, For a Christian, all of life, even the most mundane facets of our existence, become occasions to glorify God. Whenever someone does something for you, brings you a meal at a restaurant, cleans up after you, builds your house, be grateful for the human beings whom God is using to bless you and praise Him for His unmerited gifts. Do you savor your food? Glorify God for the hands that prepared it. Are you moved by a work of art, a piece of music, a novel, a movie? Glorify God who has given such artistic gifts to human beings. We say, well, does God really care about those things? Am I being over-spiritual thinking about those things? These are unmerited gifts from God. The context for glorifying God and living out our calling is every moment of every day. We have a mutual calling to live by faith, enjoying God's grace, living in gratitude for all He has done. Why? Consider your calling. What have you done really to earn your salvation? What have you done really in the eyes of God that he would look at you and say, I'm really glad I chose that one? The Bible tells us that we are actually weak when we're honest with ourselves. We are weak. We are not self-reliant. We are not autonomous. We are not independent. And in fact, we are completely dependent on him. Everything that we can accomplish is because he has allowed us to accomplish it. Even the breath that we have in our very lungs is a gift from God the will that he gives us, the want that he gives to us, the energy, the endurance to produce are just manifestations of his mercy and grace to us. Everything is a gift. In 1523, a group of nuns living in a convent heard about this from Martin Luther. They became persuaded by the theology of the reformers and that it was a life of faith that glorified God and not a life of just spiritual activity. And they said, so you're telling me that being a nun does not secure the love of God any more than not being a nun? And Martin Luther says, yeah, that's exactly what what I'm saying. And they replied with, you want to help us get out of here? (laughs) And he said, yep. And so a delivery of fish came in 12 barrels and he orchestrated with some insider moles in there and the fish came out of the barrel and the nuns crammed into these barrels and were brought out of the convent. And it was Martin Luther's purpose and desire to find a husband for every single one of these nuns. And he found a husband for every one except one. And so he married her. (laughs) To spite the devil, he says. And in fact, he didn't want to get married, and they were a horrible pair, but to much of their surprise, they become incredible friends, very intimate husband and wife. And Catherine, his wife, uh, Catherine von Bora, she was an amazing woman. She started and ran a hospital during the day and a brewery at night (laughs) and managed to raise six children at the same time. A wonderful woman indeed if we are approved if we are approved by God and his grace alone through faith then the focus of of what is and not religious activity drastically changes do you see this it's all religious it all matters anything you do at any given moment has the potential to please and glorify God if done for him in an act of faith that is our calling that is your calling. The context for spiritual activity is taken out purely from the church activity and is taken into our everyday life. How do we practice this? You see, if this is our calling, okay, so what do we what do? We do? How, do we, how do we do this in our daily life? Well, this is our next thing, the thing about our daily practice. When Paul says in chapter 2 that he desires for us, he says, I desire... That in in all of this, that your faith would not rest in wisdom, that your faith would not rest in your skill, that it would not rest in in being a a sign seeker, but in the power of God. That in every day you would practice your life, that that your faith would grow. He's telling us about the ongoing work of living out the gospel in our daily lives and everyday activities. The power of God, not only for salvation, but the power of God, working through faith, is also our growth for righteousness. Faith is talked about in scriptures in a couple different ways. Faith is talked about first, it's talked about as a gift. Right? It's an act of God to give us this gift of belief and trusting in Him. So it's, this, it's something that He does to us and it makes us once and for all at a, at a given moment, he, makes, he declares us innocent. And then faith is also talked about in another sense in scripture as a, as, 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 that it can grow. That not only is it a one-time thing that makes us, that declares us righteous in God's eyes, but it's something that increases, and and it's a rest and belief and confidence that increases and grows within us. Through Through spiritual disciplines, as we continually yield our heart and our motives and our desires to God, as we continually rest in His work for us in Christ, all of our problems come from a failure to practice and apply the gospel. God doesn't need our good works. God doesn't need our spiritual activity, but that doesn't mean we give up on them. Just because we are saved and justified by faith doesn't mean God does not desire for us to do good work. In fact, spiritual disciplines are so important because they help our outer lives of obedience conform to our inner calling, our inner reality, our inner identity of all that God has done for us in Christ. And the key to this renewal of, And gospel growth is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. And so our daily practice then becomes this daily remembrance, this daily resting, this daily preaching to our hearts as we renew our hearts and our minds according to all that God has done for us in Jesus. I want to list a few activities and practices to show you why we do them and, and how they become practices for us, daily practices for us. First one is Sabbath rest and wor- Sabbath worship and rest. Think about Sunday. Think about Sunday morning and what we're doing right now. In a man-centered view of salvation, Sunday is important because it is here where you come and you do things that are pleasing to God and through your rituals, through your prayers and through your, through your singing. You please him, you bring favor to him, you pay attention during the sermon, and I'm grateful for that. You sing during the songs, you keep your kids quiet during the call to worship. In a man-centered view, that is what is important, and so, come on, we've got to do this, it's the right thing to do, let's go to church, we have to do something nice for God. But if we're saved and justified by faith alone, then what we do and why we gather is for a very different reason. Instead of being sacrifices we make to earn God's favor, our Sunday we come to remember, to rehearse the gospel story, to confess our sins to God and let this reassurance of his love for us because of Jesus, because of the gospel, remind us of who we are what, because of what he has done. And so our Sunday gathering is not, we don't come because you want to, you want to make up for all the sins of the previous week. We come to remember where we rehearse this gospel story together, where we talk, we talk and we say, guys, remember, it's not because of you, it's because of Christ. Remember, he is good and we are not. Remember, it's his work for us and not our work for him. And then we reorient our life around it. We, t- we apply it as we look in God's word and say, okay, how does this apply? How does this good news apply to how we live? And we cultivate these habits in our lives for, okay, I want to live my life differently tomorrow, not because it's an act of pleasing God to earn his salvation, but because of all that he has done, I'm now freed up to to honor him in all that I do. It is here we find renewal in hearing that we've been declared loved and innocent and forgiven because of God's tremendous grace for us in Jesus. So we're freed up to praise him. When we sing, we sing not because we should, but because our heart overflows, In gratitude, thank you, God, for all that you have done. So Sunday becomes something very different than just getting up in the morning and doing it because you have to. It's the right thing to do because Christians should go to church, and it's just one of your few obligations you have to do. But Sunday becomes a pursuit of joy as we remember together all that God has done. And this leads us to our rest, not just our Sabbath worship, but also our rest, You've, you've heard about this phrase, the Protestant work ethic? You heard about that? No? Gosh, I'm so disappointed. Well, you just saved me 10 minutes. Don't have to talk about that. Uh, no, I'm going to do it anyway. So the, the Protestant work ethic, the Protestant work ethic, it was this, this idea of work that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation because people were saying work matters. And so they worked unto the Lord, and so they worked really, really hard because the emphasis of glorifying God was taken out from a centralized place of the church and the mass, the mass service, and it was put in everyday life. And so these Christians said, we are going to work hard unto the Lord. And so if someone said, you have a Protestant work ethic, it was a good thing. It meant that you were a hard worker. But something happened. It started as a value that created, and it ended with creating overworked people and people that that work was a good thing, and they made it an ultimate thing. And they thought, if working for God can glorify God, one plus one equals two, then working more can glorify Him more. And so people just worked all the time, and men became workaholics. And their families suffered because they were glorifying God in their work, attempting to. And what happened was work was a good thing, became an ultimate thing, and then people started to worship their work and live for work and in many ways their work had become their god and the main influencer of their emotions and their habits and their behaviors and their joys and it was it has only been recently where we began choosing jobs i don't know how long this has been going on but it's actually quite recent where we choose our jobs based on how satisfying that work is to us i want to tell you a story of a long time ago people used to choose their jobs because of how satisfying it was to their neighbor. People used to choose their jobs. The Protestant work ethic was, I am going to work hard for the benefit and flourishing of other people. But now, we choose jobs based on, how satisfying is this to me? How will this reach, help me reach my goals? And, it, and we, make, we make our work our God. And then if we do a good job in that work, that becomes our identity. And if we fail in that work, then we are, we are losers and we feel horrible. We're being driven by our work and everything that we do. So being a custodian might not be seen as a rewarding job. But it is for me. It is for me when I go to the bathroom. It's Being a custodian is a benefit to me and an act of love for God for me as you clean and kill these germs and it's protecting me from being sick. You're protecting me from the bacteria that causes sickness. You're keeping the floor clean so I don't sleep, slip. Slip or sleep on it. God, God keeps me healthy through your good work to clean and disinfect toilets. Work was, meant to be, was never meant to be ultimate. God is ultimate. We work to glorify God and to rest, and rest to his glory. And so Sabbath rest, therefore, beca- became an important theme in the Reformation to remind ourselves that we are not a slave to our work that our identity is not in what we accomplish. And so every Sunday we say, God, I am going to rest from my work because the world does not rest on my shoulders. Because this work is not my identity, but you are. We can rest from our labor and rest in God because of the work doesn't define us. Doesn't define us. Sabbath is not just a day off work. It's not just a second Saturday, but a pursuit of rest from our work and enjoyment of God's Bountiful gifts. So every Sunday when we pursue rest from our work, we are declaring to God, others, and the world, my work is not God. My work does not define me. My work is not ultimate. I work unto the Lord, but it is not everything. God is everything. This is a practice that God gives to us each and every week week don't waste it don't revolt against the sabbath rest to revolt against sabbath rest is to revolt against God's good means for our growth in righteousness it is a way that we practice our daily calling to glorify God just in resting in him and declaring to our work you don't own me you're not my God and so I can I can rest another thing is our community another way that we practice this out is our community in a man-centered salvation, you would gather in a life group. We do these small communities of where we come around the Bible and grow in relationship together. In a man-centered view of salvation, you would gather to learn information about God and who He is and what He has done and what He expects from you so that you can try hard in your life to please Him. And so you come in these communities because you feel it's the right thing to do to learn information so that you can be a better Christian. But in a, in a God-centered view of salvation, with God in the center, we gather not to pretend that we're better than we are, not to perform that we are, uh, that we are righteous uh, apart from God, but we come alongside others in real relationship to remind one another of God's truth in Scripture so that in knowing Him more, we would worship Him more, and in worshiping Him, we would enjoy Him in all that we do. And so our community with one another is not like a, a consumer relationship where, hey, you give me something I want, I give you something that you want, but it's a, a coming alongside one another as, as broken sinners, reminding each other of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's real community. Participating in this gospel story, being vulnerable, sharing our sins, and, 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 then, and then as someone is broken and sharing their struggles, we then share the good news with them. And everyone becomes a teacher. Everyone becomes a sharpener. Our prayer. What about our prayer as a daily practice of our calling? You know, a man-centered view of salvation, we pray. Why? To get things from God. We pray to God in crisis. We pray to get things from Him, to make us better, to make us more faithful, to make us more comfortable. But in in a God-centered view of salvation, we know that we have everything that we could ever have and need. And therefore, our prayer is not a way for us to change God's actions in our lives, but our prayer is a way for God to change our hearts, to change our minds, to to transform our thoughts and our attitudes, to be glorifying to Him, to empower us, to give us strength, to endure the circumstances He has placed us in. So our prayer is now not to change God, but our prayer is for God to change us. This daily practice of our calling is to glorify God, and so when we pray to Him, we say, God, would you be my everything? Would you be my all? Would you satisfy me so that I could glorify you? Would you help me to face the shadows in my heart that are keeping me from, from knowing you and loving my neighbor? What about solitude and silence? You would agree that our, our modern life and, and, and uh, our modern pace of life provides nearly zero opportunity for solitude and silence with God. And yet we see Jesus, even in the busiest times of His ministry, He was retreating to be quiet with His Father. He was retreating to become silent with His Father in prayer and in thought. And you and I are left to our, when we are left to our inner instincts and our inner inclinations, we will naturally revolt from all of God's good gifts. You may not believe it, but if left to ourselves, the Bible says, left to our own hearts, we will do whatever we want and that will always be away from God. We must practice and rehearse and labor at conforming our inner lives to the reality of God. And we can't do that without becoming silent, without listening to Him, without stopping all of the the busyness and saying, I need this quiet because I need God to speak to my heart because my heart is prone to believe lies, to revolt against his good. It's in these times, it's in these, these practices and many others that we, re, we rebuke a life of, of busyness and hurriedness, and we yield our thoughts to God so that we can, he can reveal sin in our hearts and strengthen us, and he does it. I've been personally amazed at how he does it, amazed at how God meets us in those times of solitude if we would actually yield our time to Him. And so we talk about our daily calling. If, if we are called, that our calling is found in the everyday stuff of life. We talked about some practices that we bring this, this justification by faith and a God-centered view of our lives. How do we look at lives, our lives differently? And then lastly, let's look at our daily satisfaction. We're talking about what difference the gospel makes on Monday. God's people are to be among the most satisfied people on the planet because we find our satisfaction in God our daily satisfaction I love how Paul reminds us of this in verse 28 let's read that again God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring the things that are that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God and because of him you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love what Paul is saying here, and let me tell you what he is saying. He says, this is what God is saying to us. God is saying, at my my dumbest, I am smarter than you at your smartest. (laughs) God is smarter than you and I on accident when we are being really smart on purpose. He says, at my weakest, I am stronger than you at your strongest. God, it is amazing. He said, and this is why God delights in taking weak people. This is why he likes taking people that are of not noble uh, heritage. This is why he likes taking people who have come to their, their end of their rope. And he says, I am doing this to shame those who think that it is by their strength that they are loved. God says, I, at my weakest, am more than everything you can bring at your strongest. And you and I have God. If if you and I had the, if we had the, if God gave us his very least, we would still be. We should be dancing in the streets. And yet he gives us everything. He, this is why the psalmist says, my cup overflows. You keep giving and giving and giving. And, and, and it feels like so much of it is wasted because it's just overflowing. And yet I would be satisfied if you gave me a little bit. And God says, I'm going I'm to give you a little bit and I'm going to give you all of it. Because if you're in Christ, you have all of God. You have all of his love, all of his power. You have all of it, all of his strength and his wisdom. Are you not satisfied? You have everything that God has to offer and we're still not satisfied? He thought your children were bratty. Imagine, imagine all the things that happen to you throughout your day when you give little to zero thought of God's goodness to you. All of the things... that you complain about these are blessed these are gifts when we remember we realize all the ways we complain it's a gift from God to check our hearts when someone breaks at a yellow light when they could have totally made it through and now now you got to wait 130 seconds to get through with the next green light when you become unsatisfied by that and frustrated by that you have God and everything he has given he, you have him why are you unsatisfied when a fever lasts three days for your child and you keep it at bay with Tylenol and, you, and you're not satisfied by the grace of God, why are you not satisfied? So encouraged, several years ago, when I, I heard from this pastor who serves in the Congo, and, and, and many, with, many think that the Congo is absolutely the number one worst place on the face of the planet. With humanitarian, uh, 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 economical, uh, danger, everything is political. It is the absolute worst place in the world to live. And here is this pastor, and he comes in and he says, when you guys get a fever, you go to Walgreens. When we get a fever, we go to our knees. Because that's all we have, and we plead with God And these things are not meant to shame us. He says, these are gifts. These are gifts of modern medicine. These are gifts from God. But how has it caused you to be unsatisfied and feeling that you don't need God? When your boss is impatient with us, when our employees are careless, when our new shoes get scuffed and our electric bill spikes in the summer, we become unsatisfied. And yet we have God and everything is ours. Let the one who boasts let the one who seeks satisfaction be satisfied in the Lord who has given us everything. We're so easily unsatisfied and so frequently, so infrequently grateful. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So, if God, it is God who chooses us, it is God who justifies us, it is God who sanctifies us, it is God who endures for us and gives himself fully to us by his grace, then all of our boasting, all of our gladness, all of our accomplishments. We look at Christ and we are satisfied in Him, not in us. How does the, what does the gospel have to do with our Monday? What does the gospel have to do with our Monday? Are you living a grateful life? Are you living a life of gratitude, in practice of remembering all that He has done for you? It matters tomorrow as much as it matters right now. Your Monday matters. Your Tuesday matters. Your Wednesday through Saturday, it all matters. And we can live in thanksgiving to God and gratitude for all that he has done. Are you living a life of gratitude? Let's boast in him. Let's boast in him every day. Let's pray.